Uh, I want to thank Mrs. Parhot for that very kind introduction. Uh, I also want to thank Professor Abbas Milani and Stanford's Hamid and Christina Moradam program in Iranian studies uh, for inviting me uh, to talk about my book and the impact of cholera on Iranian history. Can everybody hear me? Yep, it's working. Great. Um, I was just telling Professor Milani that about, uh, you know, we met on this month 17 years ago, uh, and he was my guest at Yale. Uh, so this must be providence at work. <laughs> I, I had, you know, I only found that found that out after I was uh, I, I, I was checking something in in one of your old books that you signed to me, and it was dated April 2002. So providence was at work to have me here uh, on April uh, 17 years later uh, as your guest. Uh, so thank you. Um, Cholera, uh, as many of you know, has been at the center uh, of the news cycle, um, stretching from war-ravaged Yemen to post-cyclone Mozambique. But today I will not be talking about the ongoing epidemics of cholera. Rather, I'll tell you the story of the profound influence of this disease in shaping modern Iran in the 19th and 20th century by transforming its institutions, governance, and perspectives on medicine, disease, and public health. Before we get into the history, let me tell you a little bit about the disease. Uh, cholera is an infectious disease caused by a strain of this comma-shaped uh, bacterium called Vibrio cholerae. It is generally acquired through the consumption of contaminated food and water. And within a matter of hours, the bacterium can colonize the small intestine where it produces a toxin that causes profuse diarrhea and vomiting that can last for days. The rapidity of its ability to colonize the intestines is often credited for why this uh, disease takes on epidemic proportions so quickly. The extreme dehydration caused by the infection eventually makes the victim appear cadaveric with sunken eyes, grayish blue complexions. It used to be known as the blue death. And I think amongst the many infectious diseases, cholera is, is the closest disease to the fictional zombification that we see in, in, in sitcoms like The Walking Dead. So, so in many ways, its victims appear like living the living dead. And often uh, uh, people were buried even though they had not died because they just looked dead. Um, so it is a, it's a dramatic disease. It's aptly uh, spectacular in terms of its symptomology, and which is why throughout history, both in East and West, it's played such a profound role relative to other diseases in shaping uh, the course of history. Um, delirious and bedridden, the victims become a shadow of their former selves, sometimes in a matter of hours, searing terrifying memories of the illness on both survivors and caretakers alike. And without treatment, they often succumb to rapid dehydration, electrolyte imbalance, systemic shock, and death. Now, there are many different biotypes of cholera, but only a few biotypes cause pandemic outbreaks that can spread uh, across countries and continents. 
Seven cholera pandemics um, have been recorded since 1816, all of which are thought to have originated in the brackish waters of, of the Bengal uh, Peninsula, uh, the Ganges Delta and the Bengal region of the Indian subcontinent. Now, uh, the disease probably evolved over a millennia because of a combination of the sort of the alkaline and brackish nature of the water and a particular ecology in that area. But it was Britain's territorial expansion into that area, into India, and its growing commercial pursuits in the Persian Gulf and the Indian subcontinent at the cusp of the 19th century that allowed this disease to break out of this isolated uh, endemic home and take on pandemic proportions. Although Britain played a key role in the spread, it was the relative stability and security that followed the founding of the new Qajar dynasty that allowed pandemic cholera to spread for the first time from Iran's coast into the heart of the country and onwards to the West in 1821. Now for the uninitiated, Iran had gone through almost a century of uh, civil war, unrest, instability since the de facto fall of the Safavid dynasty in 1721. The reconstitution of central authority under Muhammad Khan Qajar and his successor Fatali Shah at the cusp of the 19th century ended these decades of intermittent civil war, fractured rule, and isolation that had followed the fall of the Safavid dynasty. Um, the, the re-establishment of transnational relationships such as the 1801 treaty with the British East India Company and the opening of traffic on uh, Iran's main commercial highways allowed the disease that would have otherwise extinguished on Iran's coast to travel through the heart of the country and reach uh, the major cities in the north and travel onwards to the west. Uh, this newfound stability opened the country to nationwide outbreaks of pandemic cholera almost every decade, from cholera's advent in 1821 to its attenuation after the First World War. Now, when Iranians first encountered the disease, they attributed the new contagion to an immutable act of God, although astral misalignment, humoral imbalance, and other theoretical constructs existed side by side with religious notions of disease causation. Allopathic medicine at the time was mainly humoral medicine, and for those who might not know what humoralism is, it's basically the uh, Greek originally Greek idea that was refined by Avicenna that disease is caused by an imbalance in the body's four elemental humors. Although the allopathic medicine was mainly humoral, the degradation of the practice of medicine during the century of civil war that preceded the rise of the Qajars uh, largely made uh, the uh, access to allopathic doctors almost impossible for most, uh, most people in Iran. There was only few of them left. Uh, as a result, and because of the dominance of religious views on the disease, 
Uh, much of the response of the government and the population in 1821, and for the most of the Rajar period for that matter, was to abandon the diseased cities for the perceived uh, safety of the healthier countryside. During the 1892 outbreak, for example, about a fifth of Tehran's approximately 200,000 population sought refuge in the surrounding mountain villages. The dominant religio-cultural perspectives on the ideology of cholera began to change following Russia's victories over Iran in 1813 and 1828. Because of territorial disputes, Russia and, uh, and, and Iran, uh, Imperial Russia and Iran went to war twice in the early 19th century. Both ended up def uh, as defeats for the Iranians. And this um, uh, galvanized uh, the elite in Iran to seek uh, uh, Western advances in engineering, science, surgery, and therapeutics, culminating in the founding of uh, the Iran's first European-style polytechnic college, the Dar al-Fanun, in 1851 by Nasreddin Shah's reforming premier, Mirza Tarikhan Amir Kabir, to train Iran's new cadre of military officers. But Amir Kabir knew that, who, Amir Kabir, who had been the chief administrator of the country's northern army ha, and had experienced the terrible impact of the 1846 cholera epidemic on troops, realized that the need for competent medical personnel in the military. As a result, the new academy's curriculum also included education in the natural sciences and medicine. European physician instructors at the Polytechnic College would often fulfill the twin roles of being professors and chief royal physicians, or Hakim Bashi, making them especially influential among the country's power brokers. And I'm going to give you two examples of this. The first one is Jacob Edward Pollack, one of the six newly arrived Austrian instructors at the Polytechnic College. He was a um, military physician in Austria. And upon his arrival in Iran, he very quickly experienced the impact of the 1852 cholera epidemic and high casualty rates it caused amongst Iran's troops. He very graphically des describes this in his memoirs about troops being just left to die with a jug of water on the roadsides on, the way, uh, on their march to Tehran. And, and this pushed him to write his first medical treatise prior to the ending of the 1852 epidemic on cholera, uh, which included the latest European findings on its etiology and hygienic interventions to prevent its spread. This led to the establishment of the, standards, uh, of the first standards of hygiene in Iranian barracks, such as covering the floor with charcoal during times of epidemic, drinking water from its source, and disposal of refuse at a, at a distance from the barracks. Polak was followed, the uh, successor to Polak was Joseph Désiré Tolosan, who was Nasser Din Shah's new French physician, who also took over Polak's teaching responsibilities at the Polytechnic College in 1860. Tolosan had been a senior professor at the mili military teaching hospital of Val de Grasse in Paris, a veteran of the Crimean War, and a distinguished scholar of epidemic diseases who considered major improvements in Iran's medical education to be crucial 
to be crucial to its sanitary progress and its ability to combat cholera. He advocated replacing widely referenced tomes such as Ibn Sina or Avicenna's Canon of Medicine and Imam Reza's Golden Dissertation of Medicine with translations of the latest European publications on medicine and public health. By mid-century, the science of epidemiology had allowed people like John Snow and uh, his, his contemporaries to map uh, the link between water and cholera. Even though the germ theory of disease had not come to pass, there was a broad realization that, it, uh, that, that, that contaminated water was somehow linked to the disease. And these hygienic theories begin to be introduced to uh, the Iranian readers and students through people like Polak and Tolazan. The foundation of popular hygiene in Iran, as Tolazan saw it, depended on substituting traditional Galenic humoral ideas uh, with newer hygienic theories from the West, such as John Snow's waterborne model of cholera transmission, which uh, were informed by more precise epidemiological interventions. Other innovations at this time, such as the printing press, the telegraph, and newspapers familiarized Iran's population with the sanitary revolution in the West during the second half of the 19th century. Articles in, in the Iranian government weekly regularly informed its readers of efforts by civic leaders in the West in places like London, Copenhagen, and even as far away as Kingston, Jamaica, to have their streets and sewers clean to reduce the impact of epidemic outbreaks. Iran also began to regularly participate in international sanitary conferences on pandemic cholera that occurred almost every decade, beginning with the first conference in Istanbul or Constantinople in 1866. This sanitary globalization gradually transformed the Qajar regime's notions of its obligations to disease prevention, especially in light of the reported successes of European governments in halting the spread of the disease. This um, culminated under Nasruddin Shah in the creation of the Iranian Sanitary Council in 1867 to advise the government on how to prevent cholera uh, and established prevention and public health as a social institution in Iran almost half a century after the pan pandemic cholera first swept across the country. However, the growing sanitary workforce, international engagements, and knowledge of the disease's waterborne nature did not change the continued ingress of pandemic cholera in the second half of the 19th century. Proposals to improve the sanitary infrastructure of the country were largely ignored because of the Qajar regime's administrative crises and financial deficits, which had worsened with the country's growing economic globalization in the second half of the 19th century, which brought cheap industrial, flooded the Iranian market with cheap industrial goods uh, to the detriment of Iran's economy that was already overburdened by reparation payments to Imperial Russia as a result of two defeats in its wars. 
Cheap goods were not the only thing that came with the Nuss realization. Iran's integration into the steam-driven international marketplace and the opening of the Karun River, uh, which is around here, uh, uh, to uh, and the opening of the Karun River to international commerce in the latter quarter of the 19th century accelerated the reach uh, and the uh, accelerated reach of cholera to its borders, while the country's unaddressed infrastructural susceptibilities amplified the disease's domestic impact. In 1889. The uh, steamship uh, connections between Bombay, Basra, and then um, down to southern Iran and Boucher basically transported the disease so fast that Iranians were not able to establish the requisite quarantines because now the disease had steam uh, to give it speed. Same thing happened about uh, three years later during the 1892 pandemic, where basically uh, pilgrimage routes transported the disease uh, from India uh, to Mashhad, uh, a, a center of Shiite pilgrimage. And then before the disease could even reach Tehran, it traveled through newly established trans, uh, Trans-Caspian railway lines and um, steamship routes through the Caspian Sea to the west of the country, reaching Tabriz and Gilan province before the disease had even reached Tehran overland. So you see the role of industrial transportation as, uh, as being a real potentiator and giving the disease velocity like it had never had before uh, in the late 19th century. Other um, more religio-cultural issues, uh, such as belief that running water or water of a certain volume could not be defiled, so-called abekor, which is about 350 liters, worsened the epidemics in Iran. Uh, there was, you know, there's these religious beliefs that water of a certain volume, as long as it meets this volume uh, requirement, could not be defiled, could not be infected, it's pure to drink. The same, uh, uh, same religious standards existed with running water. Um, moreover, in urban areas, which were mainly supplied by uh, the Qanat water system, um, uh, these, these, this water system that came from outside of the cities often had vertical shafts connected to them which could easily get them contaminated and came uh, awfully close to the surface which again made them uh, prone to getting contaminated in urban areas. Uh, other aspect of urban areas which made uh, Iranian cities particularly vulnerable to this disease included uh, low-lying bathhouses and overland sewage systems and, and, and gutters, uh, so-called jubes, that were vulnerable uh, to contamination. Uh, these vulnerabilities played out in 1892. Uh, this is a map of Tehran during 1892, during the epidemic there, where the caravan of Nasser al-Mulk, an aristocrat who had gone on pilgrimage to Mashhad, basically overland transports uh, cholera with his caravan to the city, and uh, once it reaches near its household, a body is washed very close to, uh, to a Qanat source 
And once the Kanot, uh, this main Kanot source is infected, the cholera epidemic basically follows the pattern of the Kanot waterway across the country, across the city of Tehran in 1892, infecting all of the major districts that are supplied by the Kanots. Um, now, during the 1892 epidemic, Tehran had about a 10% mortality rate, um, which is which is a pretty high mortality rate. But 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 throughout the history of cholera in Iran, there was variance uh, in terms of death rates between the different waves and uh, among different cities uh, because of uh, vulnerable, various vulnerabilities and the virulence of the particular strain coming into the country. During the same epidemic, for example, uh, the city of Rasht lost about a fourth of its population, uh, particularly hard hit where women and children, and one of the theories I have was that these women and children were the major workforce in the rice paddies, and again, because of the fecal oral contamination, were more prone to getting the disease. Because most people's reaction to the epidemic was to leave the city, including the government, um, the, there was an almost complete absence of civic leadership during these outbreaks, permitting local forces to subvert the central government's authority and revealing the country's deteriorating state of governance in the latter quarter of the 19th century. The epidemics also unmasked simmering anger at the West's growing stranglehold over the country's commerce. This manifested itself in episodes of violence against European uh, financial interest and religious minorities, such as Armenians, that had the, uh, the, protection, uh, the diplomatic protection of Western powers. Shiite clerics were particularly effective in mobilizing popular discontent in the wake of the epidemic, and, and they cemented their roles as leaders against Western encroachment and government exploitation at the time. This manifested itself during the tobacco protests in 1891, which led to the repeal of a monopoly granted to an English company for the manufacture and sale of tobacco in Iran. Some of the initial accusations against Nasser Shah during this time did not center on the, the monopoly and the concession itself, but on the poor sanitary state of the country. And clerics often used disease and linked the, the disease state of the country to the presence of impure infidels in the country. So essentially using a disease as a tool to enhance their authority. And it's very interesting and very telling of what would happen almost a century later uh, during the 1979 revolution. Similarly, Iran's secular dissidents in this period used Western norms of public service, including interventions against cholera, as a yardstick to evaluate and criticize the government. At the cusp of the 20th century, Iran's literate strata increasingly understood the science of microbes, their pathologies, and ways to prevent germs-borne illnesses thanks to a growing number of Western-trained native physicians, as well as the expansion of medical writing in Iranian newspapers and periodicals. Uh, this is actually a, a picture from uh, a newspaper called Akhtar uh, from 1890. And it's, its depiction of germs 
Uh, and Iranians tend to be attracted to, to these sort of colorful uh, descriptions. And even illiterate Iranians would often say that they could spot germs in the atmosphere looking through telescopes. Uh, so they got the whole microscope telescope thing mixed up. This was reported by uh, uh, American Presbyterian missionaries in places like Yaz. Uh, I, I always chuckle because this was sort of the intersection of humoral theories of, of somehow infected atmosphere causing humoral imbalance and germs being in the atmosphere playing sort of this sort of imaginary uh, role in people's minds as the germ theory was taking hold in the population. But because of the rise of the germ theory, reformers increased their demands for the government to invest in the country's sanitary infrastructure. However, continued political and economic, economic paralysis largely prevented the realization of these demands. The Lajar administration's persistent inability to translate intellectual prog progress into lasting institutional um, and infrastructural reforms for public health perpetuated Iran's vulnerability to cholera pandemics at a time when large-scale outbreaks were increasingly rare in the West because of urban reform. Most prominently, uh, I know at least we have one Parisian in the audience, uh, Baron Haussmann uh, under Napoleon III totally reshaped Paris, reshaped the way water was coming to Paris, opened up the boulevards, mainly motivated uh, by a desire to reduce epidemic outbreaks. And it worked. Iranians knew about this. They were reading about this. Reports were being sent by Iranian representatives in Paris. Yet this knowledge was never translated into actual implementable action. Um, in response to a nationwide cholera outbreak in 1904, secret revolutionary societies like the Anjomani Mahfi began drawing attention to the deficit sanitary state of the country and attacked the government of Mozaffaruddin Shah for the unremitting ingress of epidemics and the poor sanitary state of public health in Iran. Now, I've talked about the demographic, intellectual, and institutional impacts of cholera. Let me touch briefly on the economic impact by focusing on the 1904 outbreak. The 1904 outbreak had a direct impact on Iran's worsening economy in the year leading up to the constitutional revolution that started the parliamentary system in Iran. Um, the epidemic caused double-digit in, uh, uh, double inflation, a 33% increase in the price of sugar, and a 90% appreciation in the cost of wheat. The country faced near-famine conditions, and the economic freefall, and the government's inability to address popular expectations really generated the public protests that culminated in the Constitutional Revolution of 1906. And I think this, this, the conversation uh, in academe about the role of disease and the role of cholera in contributing to the Constitutional Revolution has been completely missing, uh, you know, at least based on my reading of affairs. I don't know if you'll agree with me, Professor Milani. Um, I've been very negative uh, about Iran and Iranians and its leadership, but, but, but Iranians were not all to blame. And this is the imperialism part of my book. European imperial rivalries, particularly growing economic and political efforts by Russia and Britain to dominate the region, 
process known as the Great Game, also increased Iran's susceptibility uh, to cholera and hindered improvements in public health at the cusp of the 20th century. Iran's worsening fi financial condition, which I've explained to you in the last quarter of the 19th century, obliged Tehran to increasingly subordinate its sanitary regime on its frontiers to imperial interests. Um, and, and basically what happened was, uh, you know, the southern quarantines of Iran um, were in Boucher, Bandar Abbas, uh, and Mohammara were, were handed largely to the British and the British Navy because they had the sea power basically to uh, patrol uh, the south of the country. And in the Northeast, much of the quarantines uh, were run by the Russians because they had uh, the, the troops and the infrastructure, the tents, uh, mobile tents and mobile units that could establish large-scale quarantines on Iran's uh, eastern frontier fairly rapidly. But eventually, um, this, these, these, um, uh, these establishments were uh, subordinated to the strategic goals of the great powers. And they were used to accomplish their economic and political gains in the region. For example, the Russians would use their, their quarantines in the east to divert trade from Iran into their own territory and to harass British merchants coming in. On the other hand, the British down south refused to establish requisite quarantines when they were needed because they desperately fought, not only in, in, Iran's, in the case of Iran's quarantines, but generally at the international sanitary conferences to establish any or, or onerous a quarantine policy that might somehow get in the way of their commercial activity in the Persian Gulf. So what we see basically happening is that economic, economics, um, polit political and strategic goals take precedence over the health of the Iranian population by the great powers. Um, Britain and Russia resolved their decade-old Cold War in Iran with the 1907 Anglo-Russian Convention that divided Iran um, into agreed-upon zones of influence between the two powers, uh, basically Brit the British sphere being here, the Russian sphere here. This essentially transformed Iran into a proto-colony that left little room for the second majlis the under the constitutional government, it was, was a reformist majlis, uh, to enact the far-reaching structural reforms they needed to halt the ingress of epidemics uh, of cholera and other diseases. Iran's failure, its failure to forge an independent sanitary course prolonged its susceptibility to pandemic outbreaks that continued to decimate its population and economy, particularly during the First World War. Iran was ostensibly a neutral country going into the First World War. However, its territory became a battlefield between the belligerents. First, with the Ottoman uh, military moving west against their Armenian and Assyrian population and occupying parts of Iran. You know, soon after, in, uh, in 1915, the Russians landed troops down, uh, moved troops down the Caucasus to meet the Ottomans and landed troops in um, uh, on the Caspian seashore, 
uh, on the other hand, the British uh, had to face Ashley rebellion near their oil fields, so they landed sepoys and Indian troops and eventually established an almost 50,000 strong uh, South Persia rifle brigades uh, answerable to British officers. And as this map in 1916 shows, most of Iran, with the exception of this little bit, which actually had, uh, which, was, which was occupied by, by Axis and Ottoman powers, nearly, nearly most of Iran was occupied by both Russian and, and the British. 1916, and all of the country was, was basically a battlefield. Um, occupying military forces requisitioned foodstuff and disseminated epidemics as they freely traversed and fought on Iranian territory. Uh, I won't go through all of that, but the resulting displacement and famine worsened the occurrence and lethality of both local and imported infectious diseases, including almost yearly cholera epidemics between 1914 and 1918. Now, I have to say that, that, that on the issue of famine is, is sort of a popular issue in Iranian historiography. Um, I think uh, Dr. Milani and I agreed it's very difficult to see, say where the famine began and where the disease ended, so to say. Uh, certainly, the, the, the presence of troops had a lot to do with the famine, but, but Iran had uh, really uh, sort of poor governance and, and low yield of crops. And, um, you know, it was, it was not just something perpetuated by the British to, to sort of cause the genocide of Ir Iranians, so to say, but it was just a situ wartime situation of Iran as a country occupied and poor governance in the country that led to uh, poor crop yields. But what we do know was that these uh, three and a half, four years of perpetual war in Iran led to widespread disease. Uh, and ironically, Iran, a neutral country, lost as many citizens to war-related diseases as belligerent countries lost in the trenches. Now, history tends to be very funny and interesting, at least I think so. Um, uh, somewhat unexpectedly, the departure of European physicians to join the respective armies allowed a new generation of patriotic European-trained native doctors who had been stifled by their European counterparts in Iran to lead the country's public health reform. Um, prior to World War I, the Iranian Sanitary Council, which I, I mentioned before, which was Iran's main advisorial uh, body on, on public health and sanitation in the country, was led by European physicians, uh, almost by custom. It was led by the chief French physician to the Shah of Iran. But with the departure of all of these physicians to join the respective armies on the Western Front, this opened a road for a new generation of patriotic Iranian doctors uh, to take over. Uh, and Amir Khan Amir Alam epitomized this new class of influential medical technocrats. Following advanced clinical training and research at the military teaching hospital of Val de Grasse in Paris, Amir Alam returns home in 1906 to teach at the Polytechnic College. Here, actually, he's teaching um, physiology. I figured this out by looking at, uh, at, at, at the blackboard because he's showing the heart and the lungs. I mean, this is typical physiology of the heart and lungs to medical students at the Polytechnic College. That's the advantage of being a, a teaching preclinical science. But, um, he returns home to teach at the Polytechnic College in 1906, but 
He also represents his native Mashhad at the Second National Assembly in 1909, where he shapes two landmark public health laws. The Hygiene and Smallpox Vaccination Act, the Qanune Hefs Sehat Kubi, and the Medical Practice Act, Qanune Tebabat, ratified in 1910 and 1911. Um, and it's interesting because the Qanune Tebabat, for the first time, makes uh, medical practice, regulates medical practice in Iran. In 1911. Prior to 1911, you, could call your, you can hang a shingle and call yourself a doctor. After 1911, you actually have to show uh, requisite certificates, educational background, experience determined at that point by the Sanitary Council and uh, the Ministry of Interior what met a standard of physician in Iran. So this was revolutionary under him. As the first president of the Iranian Sanitary Council, Amir Alam expanded and professionalized Iran's smallpox vaccination programs immediately after the war, despite the terrible conditions in the country after World War I. After World War I, and I don't use this, uh, this lightly, Iran was a failed state. The government in Tehran could not project its power very far beyond Tehran's walls. In the north of the country, in Gilan, there was a secessionist Soviet Republic of Gilan led by the Jangali movement. Literally, the Soviet Socialist Republic of Gilan in the north, independent of the central government. In the south, Sheikh Ghazal had established a sheikhdom around in the area of Mohammara. So the country was centripetally breaking apart. And so uh, the country was terrible. Nevertheless, in the midst of this chaos, Amir Alam was still able to um, increase the country's vaccination system. And I think this is a good lesson for some of our contemporary public health practitioners, and I think they've learned this, who initially did not want to establish vaccination programs uh, in Yemen in the early days of war because they feared access. Um, had they knew, had they known the history uh, of vaccination under Amir Alam, they would have established it much quicker. Today, it's now accepted, even though there's two, you know, different authorities and there's still war in Yemen. Vaccination is 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 the word of the day against cholera. Nevertheless, improvements in the vaccination program under Amir Alam uh, was not enough, and, and the Iranians were incapable of comprehensively reforming the country's public health under worsening um, economic and political circumstances uh, after the war, and they remained uh, vulnerable to outbreaks of cholera and other diseases. But this changed uh, with the rise of the Pahlavi regime, which rose out of the ashes of the Qajar dynasty after the armistice that followed World War I, and rapidly uh, stabilized the country's administration, finances, and security. And this improved domestic security under Reza Khan returned trade and agrarian life to its pre-war level. Uh, Reza Khan defeated the secessionist, socialist uh, movements in the north, brought Sheikh Ghazal to heel, uh, put an end to banditry on, on highways, uh, pacified a lot of the rebellious tribes, and by doing this, uh, brought agrarian life and trade to normal. So much so that in a short span of time, 
uh, and especially with the modernization of treasury and revenue collection, Iran was able to balance its budget in 1925. This is radical because this had not happened for almost 100 years. This ended the vicious cycle of deficit and borrowing and allowed Tehran to develop the infrastructure of sanitation and public health in urban areas by building on the administrative and intellectual developments in public health established in the post-constitutional period. It also allowed Tehran to take over the contested British-run quarantines in the south, with the, which the British had uh, resisted. The Russian quarantines had pretty much melted away after the Russian Revolution in the east. Tehran's patronage at this time of the newly inaugurated Pasteur Institute of Iran gave the government the capability of domestic vaccine production to immunize vulnerable populations during outbreaks of Asiatic cholera. The effective fielding of both domestically produced and foreign purchased vaccines in 1927 limited the impact of the 1927 epidemic, which had ravaged neighboring Iraq, limited the impact to, in Iran to about 700 deaths. The creation of the Razi State Serum and Vaccine Institute, the country's first domestic uh, pharmaceutical company in 1931, multiplied the domestic reach and vaccine production capabilities of the government. When cholera returned to Iran in 1931 and again in 1939, it no longer had the devastating impact of the epidemics of the 19th and early 20th century, uh, with only a few hundred deaths in both cases. This marked the end of Iran's age of cholera, but it certainly isn't the end of our story. In 1966, the WHO commended the Iranian government for its response to a new and virulent El, El Tor strain of uh, pandemic cholera that had invaded the country's east the year prior uh, through India, uh, originating the, the El Tor strain at that time had originated in, in uh, Indonesia and it traveled east uh, through India, Afghanistan, and into Iran. The Iranian government largely halted the outbreak in 1965 after several months of aggressive immunizations with domestically produced vaccines, prophylactic antibiotic use with chloramphenicol, which actually is um, what was at the time counterindicated in the United States because it was thought to be toxic, and uh, quarantine, so aggressive uh, and heroic interventions. Um, it is notable that Iran, at least in the rural areas in, in the 60s where most of the people lived, had not significantly upgraded its sanitary infrastructure. That meant that other undertakings, particularly the government's vaccination campaign, played an oversized role in stopping the pandemic. This is important to note because in the history of cholera, uh, sanitation gets an oversized credit for ending the age of pandemics. And, and this calls for a reevaluation of the non-Western experience with cholera, because we see, in the case of Iran, that biological interventions, such as the use of antibiotics and the use of vaccination, actually plays a bigger role than infrastructural change in bringing an end 
and stopping epidemic outbreaks. It's also a lesson I think anti-vaxxers could, could learn in this area, certainly, with our measles outbreak. Iran's industrial neighbor at the time, and during the 65, the Soviet Union did not fare as well. Um, where, the, where the pandemic slowly crawled westward through the Russian heartland in the ensuing five years, reaching Crimea in 1970. So the Soviet Union didn't stop the, the pandemic the same way the Iranians had. Iran's relative success against the El Tor pandemic was built on the foundations of modern biomedicine and administration that were established in the Qajar period. The Pasteur and Razi Institutes owed their existence to the emergence of public health as a professional discipline and a triumph of the germ theory of disease in Iran at the turn of the 19th century. The country's modern medical workforce and laboratory infrastructure, also established in that period, allowed the Iranian government to rapidly detect and ind indigenously manufacture an effective vaccine to contain the cholera outbreak. This would have not been possible without Tehran's constructive technic technical collaboration with the World Health Organization in 1965, built on a century of international sanitary engagements, dating from Iran's participation in the first international sanitary conferences against cholera in 1866, 100 years prior to the outbreak in 1965. The vaccine's delivery on a national scale relied on an organized network that had its origins in Iran's successful countrywide smallpox immunization efforts in the years after the First World War. Iran, the Iranian Ministry of Public Health, which had directed the government's campaign against the pandemic, traced its institutional roots to the Sanitary Council that first convened almost 100 years earlier to stop the spread of Asiatic cholera. The story of cholera also has important implications for Iran's current record level opiate addiction epidemic. Um, I don't know how many of you know, but Iran has one of the highest per capita opiate addiction rates in the world, uh, puts our opiate um, epidemic to shame. Um, Iran's common border with Afghanistan, the world's largest opium producer, has made the drug and its derivatives readily and cheaply available to consumers, just as Iran's shared border with India in the 19th century, the endemic home of cholera, made it vulnerable to regular invasions of the pandemic over a century ago. Iran's counter-narcotic efforts are paralyzed by the same types of corruption, rigid ideological and turf wars in the government and security apparatus that hindered Tehran's ability to stop the spread of cholera in 1904. An on-again, off-again draconian and religiously inspired punitive and unscientific approach to the problem using imprisonments and executions have only doubled the pro uh, population of addicts in the last seven or eight years and this is not the WHO reporting, this is the Islamic Republic's parliament reporting that the population of addicts in the last eight years has doubled. Much as the religious beliefs in water purity worsened the cholera epidemics in the 19th century. Just as Iran's diplomatic missteps with European imperial powers worsened its vulnerability to cholera, its current decades-old hostility 
towards the United States and its interventionist policies in the region has deprived Tehran of critical intelligence and coordinated cross-border police action that could reduce the flow of narcotics across its frontiers. The only way to address this problem is for the Islamic Republic not only to embrace a scientifically informed public health approach to the problem, but even more broadly to change its illiberal approach to the current social, economic, and political determinants of addiction. Now, I'm amongst friends, so I will be provocative, admittingly. And the question I will throw out at you with a smile on my face is, if Tehran does not address this problem, could the growing epidemic of drug use and hopelessness trigger a larger political movement that could bring an end to the 40-year theocracy, just as the 1904 epidemic brought an end to Iran's uninterrupted history of absolutism? Thank you very much.